I don't know if you've heard of or seen uh, the movie, The Spiderwick Chronicles, uh, or read the books. It's based on some uh, children's books, a series of children's books. Um, uh, the movie is what I've seen, uh, Spiderwick Chronicles. It's, uh, it's where a family, a young family, uh, a couple young kids, um, moves into a rather creepy house in the middle of the woods, and uh, one of the children discovers in the kind of creepy attic in the creepy house uh, some creepy treasure chest. It's all just creepy, right? <clears throat> um, kind of spooky stuff, uh, maybe a bit for the older kids. But um, one of the children discovers a book about this magical world that's all around, right? And, um, and the, the children uh, start to get into trouble in... Um, Interacting with this magical world that's all around, even though this magical world is all invisible to them, right? Um, they can only see the the brownies and the sprites when uh, when these creatures want them to see, right? Uh, or um, when they have this this kind of magic device, it's like a, a stone ring that when they look through it, then they can see the magical world all around them. They're interacting with this world. These these little creatures are. Um, uh, Messing with their lives, they're influencing the visible world, but they wouldn't be able to see them unless they had this thing that they were looking through where they can actually see, oh, okay, we're being attacked by a troll right now. Um, that's why this hurts. Uh, so this little stone ring, when you look at it, it enables you to see things that are otherwise invisible, even though they're all around you influencing you. And I think that's a pretty decent illustration or analogy what, uh, what Paul's praying for in our passage. Uh, in the passage that we're going to read and talk about this morning, Paul's praying for something very similar to that. He's not tapped into a world of magic, but he's tapped into a spiritual world, a spiritual reality that in a sense sort of maps over the world that we can see, the visible world. Right? The spiritual world interacts with and, and influences the, uh, the physical, visible, tangible world that we're that we can normally see. And so Paul is compelled in our passage to pray that the readers of his letter would have true spiritual sight. Right? Kind of like looking through that stone ring. Paul's praying that we would be able to have true spiritual sight. That it's kind of the faith, faith vision that allows us to see what's really real, what's going on sort of behind the scenes, um, the eternal underpinnings of this temporal existence is the gospel at work over and through and behind the visible world. And so Paul, um, really as any good Presbyterian would do, Paul doesn't just pray, right? He, he teaches through the prayer. He teaches us how to pray, and he tells us what we should be seeing when our prayers are answered. What, he, what he's praying for, um, he teaches us what it looks like when the eyes of our hearts are opened or, or spiritually enlightened to be able to see the spiritual world. Uh, there's, there's plenty going on around us. Um, when you just look with, with your regular earthly eyes, would just be utterly demoralizing, right? If you're looking at the world around, if it's the whole truth about reality, it's just bad news for us, right? what you can see with your two eyes. Daily religious persecution, some pretty serious stuff happened this week around the world. Um, terrorist attacks, racist murders, the national celebration of the redefinition of marriage away from the glory and the beauty and the love of um, uh, the true love as God intended it. Um, even inside the church with our 
tendency, it's a universal tendency that we have toward divisiveness, right? uh, to pull away from each other, um, and fighting. You've got people leaving the church. You've got respected church leaders who are well-known uh, for their uh, understanding and their preaching of the gospel who sin and disqualify themselves from public ministry and it leaves, leaves us wondering, boy, things are, things are really bad. If, if all I can see, if what I'm seeing here with my two eyes, if, if that's really all there is, we can be pretty demoralized. So we need to live by faith, right? We need to live by that faith vision. We need to have that stone up to our eyes so that we can see what's really going on in the world so that we won't be demoralized. We need to live by faith and not by sight or else we'll despair. We need a vision of spiritual reality to sustain us in a world like this. It's not just interesting stuff, right? This is not just interesting stuff. It's vital to our life with God, to our life together with God in the church. So that's what we'll talk about this morning. Let me pray, and then we'll read the scripture. Father, we pray that right now you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would help us to see in your word uh, your perspective on the world and Uh, the perspective of the gospel in a way that renews us and revives us and refreshes us and equips us to be able to live for you in a difficult world like this. We pray that um, you would not leave us just looking with our mere earthly sight and senses at the world around us, but that you would equip us with true spiritual vision now as we consider your gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So once again, actually, in this passage, this this paragraph, uh, we're dealing with a single sentence in the original language, just like the the bulk of this uh, first chapter in Ephesians. So pretty much Ephesians chapter 1 is two sentences long in the original language uh, in in Greek. Uh, In fact, much of Paul's writing... In Ephesians in particular, as Peter once put it, is hard to understand, Um, maybe largely because of his grammatical choices. (laughs) Uh, But it's it's really a tremendous uh, thing to look at, and you should should spend more time in this passage uh, on your own later in this this week, I think. Um, He begins, for this reason... So he's talking about what's come before, right? The, the passage that we've spent several weeks looking at already. Uh, for this reason, that is, because of the truth about God, 
that we've seen so far, I'm, I'm praying for you right? for this reason. And so he's referring to the good news from the first part of Ephesians 1 that, uh, that the triune God, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has been at work throughout eternity, and he's been at work in time and in history and in the world, and he's been at work in your life, your, your life as an individual and your lives collectively as the church. He's been at work to knit us together to bring us to unity in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. God wanted the church. That's what Paul's referring to. God wanted the church. He created the church. He gives himself to the church, and the church belongs to him. He's in a relationship with the church in Christ. He has overcome our tendency toward division, to pull away from God and to pull away from each other, uh, and he's brought us true spiritual unity, even though we're diverse people. And he's already uh, referenced that, uh, this, this concept of the diversity that they were dealing with in the early church being between Jews and Gentiles, these two uh, groups of people who didn't like each other. He's brought true spiritual unity among that diversity. And it's because of this, because of this God and because of his work and his goals uh, in our lives as his people in the church, it's because of this that Paul prays for the church. Now, he's praying for the church in Ephesus. He's really praying for the church everywhere. This prayer uh, is universally um, applicable. He knows that the people he's writing to are Christians. And he knows that these Christians trust Christ. They've believed the gospel. They've, they've put their faith in Christ. Uh, and that they love the church. They love all the saints. Again, that language calling attention to the, the broad diversity of people united in the one church. Um, but he also knows that Christians still need to grow. Right? Christians still need to deepen in their faith so that they will grow and deepen in their love for one another. So that the, the unity, the spiritual unity that we have in Christ will find its fuller expression in our everyday lives. Right? Um, so he knows that we need to grow in that. So he offers thanksgiving to God for them, because I know you already trust and love. And he prays for more. Right? So his, uh, when he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, um, he's not just being perfunctory or polite. Right? Uh, he thanks God for Christians' faith and for their love for one another. Right? He's not just applauding the Christians for believing and for loving each other. He's not just saying, good job, Christians. He's actually saying, thanks be to God for your faith and love, it, because it really is a miracle. It really is a miracle that, um, of God's own doing that any of us show up to church at all. It, it's a miracle that you show up to church. Uh, and that says something about us, right? That, that does say something about us. It says, it's it's shocking that people like us would even bother to come. Why would you show up here, right? Sometimes I really wonder why there's anyone here at all. I'm, I'm serious. We, the elders talk about this uh, somewhat regularly. You do realize that we are here to give up our autonomy, right? To confess our sins and our problems and our weaknesses, right? To die to ourselves, to give up the pursuit of our own glory, to give ourselves wholly and truly to God and to each other, right? You realize that's why we're here. This is not stuff that anybody in this world just kind of naturally says, I'm game, sign me up, right? Where's that happening every week? Um, so it's a wonder that you keep coming back for more of that. It really is, and it's something that we should thank God for 
that uh, there's anybody here at all in the church. But Paul's Thanksgiving says something. Uh, it says something about us. It says something more profound about God, right? About uh, about what kind of God He really is. That He really does care about this thing called the church. He really does care, and He really is at work in the church and in our lives. And in this life, that work will never be finished. That's what Paul is saying. So Paul prays. Verse seventeen. Uh, he gives. Uh, the shape of his prayer, it's a, it's a majestic Trinitarian shape, kind of like what happened already in the first part of Ephesians, um, calling attention to the three persons of the Trinity working together for our salvation. So his prayer is shaped by the Trinity. He, he prays um, in verse 17 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And so the main thing Paul prays for believers here, very basically for the church, for you and for me, is that the Holy Spirit would come to you and bring you wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. That's the main thing. Basically, he's just praying that the Spirit would come, that that God would send his Spirit and help you to know God better. Pretty simple. Um, He's praying for believers, people who already know. God to some degree, right? He's praying that you would deepen in that. And it's not to say we shouldn't pray this prayer for our unbelieving friends, right? We should pray this prayer for ourselves and for everyone that we know. But he knows, Paul knows, that you're already a Christian. You already have the Spirit of God. He's already written about that, that you already know the gospel. He's thanked God for that truth, and he prays that you would know the gospel more deeply so that it can have a more profound, revolutionizing, lasting effect on you, especially in your life together in the church. That's what this book is about, that the gospel would um, change the way that you view the church and interact with fellow Christians, brothers and sisters in the church. Um, So Paul prays for the gift. This, This is important. He prays for the gift of the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Revelation, uh, like the book Revelation, right? Like the book at the end of the scriptures that everybody's confused about and argues about and... um, uh, but it's John's vision, right? John, the apostle, opens that book, opens that letter about uh, his revelation. It's his vision when he was in the spirit. That's what Paul's praying for, the spirit of wisdom and revelation. John had that spirit, and he wrote the book of Revelation, and it was his vision of what? His vision of heaven, of the heavenly, eternal realities that are at work throughout history. It's when you, when you peel back behind what's visible, what do you see when you see God's work behind everything? That, that word revelation that Paul uses and that that book is named after um, is, uh, is from the Greek word that, that we get apocalypse for. It's apocalypsis. Right, so um, that's, we usually think that means kind of end of the world, right? Apocalypse now. When you think of the apocalypse, you're just thinking the end this tumultuous time of upheaval and, uh, and terror and death that happens at the end of the world. It's not just end of the world stuff. That's not what that word means. It's not what revelation means or what it's primarily about. It's revelation. It's revealing, right? It's, uh, it's an unveiling. It's a pulling back of the curtain of this visible reality to know the invisible spiritual eternal reality 
that's going on behind the scenes. So we saw a picture of that um, in the Old Testament reading from 2 Kings chapter 6 when Elisha is surrounded, he and his servant are surrounded by the Syrian army. The, the Syrian king's pretty upset at Elisha for blowing all his plans to ambush the king of Israel. And, um, and so uh, he sends his army to surround Elisha. Elisha's servant goes outside, sees the army, steps back inside the tent again and says, we're in big trouble. There's, there's an army. What are we going to do? And Elisha says, don't worry about it. And he prays basically the same prayer that Paul prays for his people here. Open the eyes of his heart. Open his eyes so that he can see spiritual reality. Reveal to him the spiritual heaven reality that, that's, that's going on right now that you can't just see with mere earthly sight. And when he does that, he looks again and he sees horses and chariots of fire. It's a, it's a greater army of uh, what we imagine to be just the angels of the Lord, the armies of the Lord of hosts uh, surrounding the armies of uh, the king of Syria, right? So <clears throat> it's, a, it's a great, I mean, it's a great illustration for what we're talking about this morning. Paul wants Christians in the church to be able to see that kind of stuff, kind of. Not so much angels and uh, spiritual powers going on uh, behind the scenes. We have the book of Revelation for that. It tells us what's going on, and it's encouraging, right? If you try to explain the book of Revelation to a seven-year-old, it's basically Jesus wins. Take heart right? Um, But Paul wants Christians in the church to be able to walk by faith with that kind of vision, knowing with that kind of wisdom and revelation that comes from the Holy Spirit that we can take heart because we're not just walking by sight. He says in 2 2 Corinthians 4, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And this is what faith is, right? So uh, the writer of Hebrews, the author there in chapter 11 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Not with your own eyes, right? The conviction of things not seen. So Paul, he's praying for our faith, and he's not just praying that we'll be able to see what's wrong with the world. When he's praying for the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God, he's not just praying, let them see what's wrong, what's broken with with the world and with other people, not even just with ourselves, what's wrong behind the scenes, right? What's really, truly wrong with this world. He's not just praying. It's not hard to be critical of everything and to think that's the gift of discernment, isn't it? Um, That's not the gift of discernment that... Paul's talking about anyway. Paul knows that if we have true spiritual discernment, real faith vision, the eyes of our hearts opened and enlightened in the knowledge of God, then we'll actually be able to see beyond what's broken with the world. We'll actually be able to see beyond what would normally just be discouraging and frustrating and a reason for complaining and wringing our hands. We'll be able to see beyond that to see beyond the brokenness and take great comfort in seeing the spiritual reality of the gospel at work. Um, Brian Chappell says in his commentary on Ephesians, if our world is not to overwhelm us, we must know that what we see is not the full reality. The caring apostle prays 
that the Ephesians will see the spiritual reality that is not apparent to ordinary sight. It's not apparent to ordinary sight. Paul prays that God would give knowledge of himself to his people. So when we know who God is, what kind of God he is, because he's told us what his work looks like in the world, in history, and in our lives through his spirit and through his word, when we know that about God, we can take heart. That should be the appropriate response, right? that we can take heart. So what specifically does Paul want us to be able to see with the eyes of our hearts? When he's talking about uh, this in his prayer, three things, basically the hope to which he's called you, verse 18. First, the hope to which he's called you. Second, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And third, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward believers. So much is going on here. Maybe we should take another uh, week to look at this passage. Uh, It's really overwhelming in a wonderful way, so we'll have to treat these things pretty quickly. Uh, So first, the hope to which he's called you. We usually use the word hope uh, to express our wishes in the face of uncertainty, right? Like, I hope that the weather doesn't stay like this for very long, right? Um, I hope that she likes me and responds well when I ask her out, that kind of thing. That's, uh, but the Bible talks about hope differently. It's actually used to express the certainty of something in the future. Something's coming, we know it's coming. We have good reason to, to know and believe that it's coming. It's guaranteed to us and how that affects our approach to life in the present. That's what biblical hope is. Uh, there's a great illustration that a lot of preachers use. I've probably used it before. But basically, you've got this, uh, this, this tedious, mundane job, and you've got two workers and one guy you set him up at the beginning of this, uh, this job and, says, and you say to him, look, you're going to do this job for a year. And it's tedious, it's boring, it's mundane. The coworkers are, you know, they argue all the time. Your boss is not that great, right? Uh, you're going to do this job for a year and we'll see what you get at the end of it. Right? We'll see, uh, we'll, we'll negotiate your pay at the end of the year. And you say to the other guy, you're going to do the same job. You're going to work with the same people for the same boss, all this tedium, whatever. Uh, and you say, you're going to get a million dollars at the end of the year. That's guaranteed. million dollars for doing this job for a year. And uh, the way that that would affect, the way that they would engage in that job and in their daily lives, right? One, not knowing really what's going to happen at the end of this, why would I even go through all of this? And the other knowing there's a big payoff coming at the end. I can do this happily. It might be tedious. I don't care, right? It might be draining working with you. I don't care. Uh, it, that kind of hope, that kind of certainty about the payoff at the end, right? Certainty, the guarantee of a good and glorious future, it affects the way that we live now. And that's what the Bible means by hope, right? The hope to which God has called you is something that's guaranteed by the gospel, namely, that you will inherit God himself in eternity. That in him, all things will be yours in the new heavens and the new earth. You will be given a resurrection body 
The whole world will be made right and new. Everything will work the way that it's supposed to work, including yourself, everything about you. Your body, it will live forever. It will work properly. Your heart, your mind, your soul, everything will be the way that it was, is supposed to be. You'll have a resurrection body like Christ because, uh, because he's already got that body. We see what it's like, and it's pretty amazing. He's lived for 2,000 years in that body right? in heaven. You'll be purified and exalted in every way to be able to enjoy and glorify God in every way forever. That's the hope to which he's called you. It's not an uncertain hope. It's something guaranteed to us by the gospel. And that puts everything in this world, in this life, in perspective. When you can see that, when you've got your eyes fixed on that hope, that spiritual reality that's behind all of reality, it puts everything that's going on in this life in perspective. Paul writes in Romans 8, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. Secondly, Paul prays that the riches, uh, that we would know the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. So here, here Paul's talking not about our inheriting God, right? Not what we get out of this thing if we enter into this relationship with God by faith in Christ. Not what we get out of it in the long run, but what God gets out of it. His glorious inheritance in the saints. His inheriting us and how that's rich in glory for God. He's referring specifically to the fact that God himself is delighted at the thought of being with his people together forever. A people that are made up of redeemed Sinners from every tribe and tongue and nation. That idea excites God. Right? He looks at the multifaceted jewel of the church and he thinks nothing could be more precious, nothing could be more beautiful, nothing, there, there could be no greater treasure. People who were once at each other's throats in their self-centeredness. People who looked for any reason to distance themselves from each other. People who had no reason to gather together across natural divides, right? like uh, nationalism or racism or sexism. Right? People who have no reason to, to gather together across those divides, he has reconciled to himself through Jesus Christ in one body through his substitutionary life and his atoning death on our behalf. God has knit people like us together. And so God looks at the church in Christ, and he smiles, and he laughs, and he rejoices, and he dances. This is all biblical language. This is what God does when he, when he considers the church in Christ. Zephaniah 3, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. He looks forward to the day when we're all together, face to face, having put aside every division forever for our beautiful union in Jesus Christ. That's the promise he's made to himself. His glorious inheritance in the saints. And when you tap into God's own vision for his church, and you start to see this thing, not for what she is right now, but for what she will be one day, 
the glorious bride of the Redeemer, then you'll take heart. Even if she's not worth a second glance right now, in and of herself, the church, the eyes of faith see her as she will be, as God is looking forward to seeing her one day, glorified, and it affects our own love for the church. It affects our commitment to the church, our life together. And third, <clears throat> Paul prays for the, uh, that, we, that we would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward believers. And this is the crazy part uh, that takes up the bulk of Paul's prayer. The rest of it from here is all part of this prayer. It's the part where perhaps we need the Spirit's help most to help us to understand spiritual things, uh, spiritual reality, things going on behind the scenes. Basically, Paul is praying that we would be able to perceive God's power, God's kind of power, that we would be able to perceive God's kind of power, which is resurrection power. Right? This doesn't just mean look at how strong God is. He can raise somebody from the dead, and who else can do that? That's amazing. It doesn't just mean that. That may be implied, but the main point, I think, is that resurrection is the way God usually works. That's, that's the kind of power he has. That's what his power looks like. That's the expression that he gives it in this world. And that's hard to see, and that's hard to appreciate. But when we do, it turns everything upside down in a good way. Because here's the problem. When we look at this world... We think real power looks like being able to prevent bad things from happening. If I've really got real power, I've got everything under control, and I'm managing everything right, no suffering. I will stop bad things from coming into my life. We think real power is being able to stop bad things from even happening, but God's immeasurably great power. This kind of power takes us right through bad things and out the other side into glory every time guaranteed. Into glory through suffering, through bad things. Just like old Sam Bowden always says, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. We have absolute warrant to believe that it will be okay because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because of his resurrection, we're assured of our resurrection. We know that the ultimate victory is ours. We have the proof of it. When God raised Jesus from the dead, when he rose from the dead, it was God's guarantee that this whole world is not just a world characterized by death like we see with our own eyes. It's not just a world characterized by death. It's a resurrection world. And that is the power that's at work behind everything, even if we have to go through some pretty serious suffering on the way there. Right? And in fact, not in spite of going through pretty serious suffering on the way there. It's because we go through suffering. That's how resurrection power works. Right? That's how God's kind of power works. His power 
is the power of suffering love that dies, but then rises again, victorious and glorious to live forever. In fact, not just to live forever, but to rule over all things forever in glorious power. Jesus himself was raised from the dead, and he was seated at God's right hand, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in this world and the next, forever ruling over all things for the sake of his church. And so that means that resurrection power, this kind of power of suffering love that dies and then is raised to life immortal, that kind of power, that resurrection power, trumps everything. It trumps everything. You think that power to bring death is strong? (laughs) Do your worst. Do your worst. The one who died for love, who was raised, and who is now the cosmic Lord of all, he has immeasurably great power working towards you, and his resurrection is not just the proof. His resurrection is the proof of your resurrection that it's going to be okay in the end. It's not just the proof, it's the pattern. His power looks like this in the world and in your life. It looks like this. You're going to love as Christians. You trust in God. It compels you to love one another and to love others with the love of Christ himself. You're going to do that, and it's going to backfire on you. That's how his power works. You're going to love, and it's going to backfire on you, and you'll be frustrated and you'll be disappointed, and you'll be wounded, and you'll suffer rejection, and you'll suffer betrayal, and you'll suffer persecution, and you'll suffer humiliation and defeat, and you're going to lose control, and you're going to die. That's what his power looks like in this world. Because when you pull back the curtain behind all of that, behind all that bad stuff, You pull back the curtain, you see glory. You see the wonderful pattern, the unstoppable pattern of a seed dying and falling to the ground and then sprouting and bringing life. That's his kind of power. That's resurrection power. It's the true and everlasting victory of love and life over death in the, ultimately, the eternal spring of the new world that God is bringing you two together. Hebrews chapter 11, uh, a great chapter about faith in the book of Hebrews. In the middle of all these sufferings that God's people endured for their faith, for their faith they endured lots of sufferings, right? It says, by faith, God's people were made strong out of weakness. That's what God's power looks like, his immeasurably great power, his resurrection power. And faith vision that Paul's praying for, faith vision sees that kind of power, that resurrection power at work everywhere, ruling over all things, behind all things and over all things. That's what faith sees. Christians have peered behind the curtain to see the ultimate hope and glory and power at work in the universe and in our lives when we've seen the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've peered behind the curtain. If you only look at the world around us, 
If you only look even just at the church around us with your physical eyes, you'll get bummed out and you'll be tempted to give up. You'll be dismayed. Tolstoy said, is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? Not if you just look with the eyes of this life, the eyes of this world. There's no meaning. Death's going to ruin it all. What's the point of even getting together if this is all there is to the church? What's, What's the point of even getting out of bed if this is all there is to life? Who wants to do it? Eugene Peterson said, We read Ephesians as the revelation of all the operations of the triune God that are foundational beneath what is visible among us and at work throughout each congregation. This is what makes us what we are. However imperfectly or neurotically, we may happen to be living it out. The the eternal operations of the triune God It makes it worth it. The Spirit reveals true hope and glory and power to us when we pray for a deeper knowledge of God, for faith vision, right, for spiritual enlightenment, for our spiritual sight to be calibrated to the realities of the gospel. Uh, This is what prayer for the Holy Spirit looks like. And uh, what it really looks like when God answers that prayer is this. And this has to be a prayer. We can't muster this up for ourselves Uh, or else we'll just revert to mere world vision and we'll just get depressed and discouraged when we see what's going on in the world and in the church around us. You cannot muster up the courage to tackle life in a world like this. God himself has to sustain you with a vision of himself that comes from the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. It's like, uh, just kind of a closing illustration here, you know those really frustrating faucets in the bathroom where you press it down and water comes out just for like a second. You're like, come on, maybe if I press it down harder, it'll last longer. Or I'm just going to hold my hand down on this thing so that the water will keep coming out. It's, our, our spiritual vision has to be renewed like that. God keeps us dependent on him in relationship with him through, through our prayer, through our weakness. We need to be uh, tied in to who God is and what he, the, the way that his work looks like in our lives. You've got to keep praying. You've got to keep reading the scripture, having your vision renewed, keep seeking the realignment of your vision with God's reality through the gospel, right? We've got to pray for each other. It's vital. We've got to keep getting together to help each other in this, to fix our eyes on the gospel of Jesus Christ together. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we pray for ourselves and for our friends and loved ones who do not yet know you. We pray that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of yourself, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would help us to know the hope to which we've been called, that you'd help us to know the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints. You'd help us to know the immeasurable greatness of your power, your resurrection power, your kind of power, that you would help us to see these things and have our eyes fixed on these things through the gospel of Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us and is at work in the world to restore all things, even though when we look just with our earthly sight and we see none of it. We pray that you would help us to deepen in our faith You'd help us to latch on to the gospel in our hearts, 
and that you would help us to help one another toward that end, to, to pray for each other, this prayer that the Apostle offers for us, because we, we need you, and as we pray for you, uh, we know that you will respond, that you, you freely give yourself to people who seek you. We pray that you would do so for the glory of your kingdom, for our faith, for the testimony of the gospel, and for our love for one another. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.